Welcome back to the Unlearning Podcast. My name is Ashley Lynn Hanks, and I am your coach, your guide, your biggest cheerleader as you make the journey towards unlearning toxic Christian theology. Each episode on this podcast is geared towards helping you love Jesus and your neighbor through healthy, life giving theology. On today's episode, we will be continuing our series on the Gospel of Luke. If you haven't had a chance to check out that first episode in this series, please be sure to check it out. I just recorded my interview with Pastor Aaron Van Voorhis of Central Avenue Church, and he explained what I talked about in that first episode on Luke. Aaron, who actually went to a relatively conservative Bible college for undergrad, explains that almost all pastors that go to Bible colleges or seminaries that are academically accredited, they are taught the same thing, that the Bible is pieced together over the centuries and edited quite often by different religious leaders. And the text we have today has been highly edited. Think of it this way. On Instagram, you can see if a post has been edited. When you see the caption that has been edited on Instagram, that means that the post was published out in the open in the internet world, but then the person went back and edited the published post. The composition of scripture is kind of like that. What we read as the Gospel of Luke isn't exactly the point of view of one eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke is a composition of Mark and a couple of other sources pierced together, with the additions and edits over the years. It was shared and circulated to different churches, and it has circulated. As the Christian church began to congregate and formalize, edits were made. Pastors never talk about this because to the average churchgoer, this is unsettling. Learning about scriptural composition implies that the Bible is not inerrant or without error. And if this idea is unsettling to you, I want to encourage you to remember that just because the Bible has edits and different manuscripts does not mean that scripture is unholy or not sacred. Even though the two ideas seem to conflict, it doesn't mean they're not true. Both ideas can be true. Both realities can be true. The Bible can have edits and still be a holy, sacred text. And so today we're going to enter into what many people call the infancy narratives. For this series on Luke, I'm going to feature different sizes of scripture each episode. I'm not going to feature an episode on every event or story. Sometimes I'll cover large chunks of scripture, and sometimes I'll cover just a small passage or verse. And today I want to bring to your attention the Annunciation, or the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, and all that surrounds these two men and their nativities. Both stories parallel in a very compelling way, and both stories highlight a very important part of our Christian faith, the creed behind all creeds, as Fred Craddock calls it. And so we have a lot of wonderful theology to cover today, so let's get started. First of all, the Gospel of Luke, according to the introduction in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, was written to Theophilus, a gentleman named Theophilus. The name Theophilus means friend of God. Some scholars believe that Theophilus was a high-up government official. Other scholars believe that addressing the Gospel narrative to Theophilus, to the friend of God, Luke is using the name as a literary device to address the whole gospel to the friends of God or the early church. 
Some scholars believe that the infancy narratives, as found in Luke chapters 1 through 2, are a later addition to the gospel, primarily because chapters 1 and 2 have no strong connection to the rest of the gospel. Some scholars believe that the infancy narratives were not written by Luke, but added later to establish the deity of Jesus to prove that he is and was the Son of God. The virgin birth and the shepherds and the message of Gabriel do not come up again in the rest of the gospel, or even in the book of Acts. Luke chapter 3 and following stand on their own without chapters 1 and 2. Furthermore, the two parts don't seem to be consequentially connected. Nothing about the virgin birth of the shepherds has consequences for what happens in later chapters. It doesn't even come up. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, those opening lines in that chapter very much seem like an opening to a story. And I quote, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, etc. Even though there is a compelling case to make for the separation of the infancy narratives from the rest of the Gospel of Luke, I don't think it matters if we separate them. Even though it seems like those two chapters, those two chunks of scripture have no connection to the rest of the story, our Lucan infancy narratives are powerful and wonderful and help us to see the heart of God in a completely wonderful way. We often understand John the Baptist as the forerunner, the guy who prepared the hearts and minds of Israel for the Messiah, the forerunner of the gospel. If you are unfamiliar with John the Baptist, this guy was a radical man and a radical theologian. This preacher's kid, this PK, was born of two very elderly parents, Elizabeth and Zachariah. Instead of growing up into this law-abiding, color-in-the-lines Jewish family and turning out to be like his Jewish priest dad, John grew up wearing camel hair with a leather belt. And at the time, that was weird. It still is weird, but at the time that was weird. (laughs) John's radical theology was rooted in repentance, where he preached as a voice crying out in the wilderness, encouraging people to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In addition to being a loud and somewhat weird theologian and preacher, John the Baptist was confrontational. In Luke chapter 3, verse 7, Luke states that John called the crowds who came to hear him speak, he called them vipers and demanded that they bear fruits worthy of repentance, end quote. This is a radical theological point, and his theology had a following, a huge following at that. His message of repentance, of true repentance, of behaving in a way that that reflected repentance was so compelling that when Paul visited the Greek city of Ephesus some 20 years later, he still found disciples of John. And you can check out that story in Acts chapter 19. The birth of John the Baptist is a beautiful story. His father, Zechariah, was a Jewish priest known to be, and I quote, righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord, end quote. And the man had no children. He and Elizabeth had no children. We know that being barren was a huge shame to a Jewish couple with the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. According to Deuteronomy chapter 24, Jewish men were allowed to divorce their wives if he felt that she did not please him. 
implied in that statement could easily mean infertility. And if a woman remained infertile, it would be okay or justifiable for a man to divorce her. This will come into play when we talk about the passage where Jesus talks about divorce and the petty reasons that Moses allowed it. But even though he had the legal right to divorce Elizabeth, Zechariah did not. As was part of his job, Zechariah was chosen to go into the holy place to offer priestly prayers through burning incense. It's important to note that Zechariah was one of about 18,000 priests at this time. Jewish priests served in the temple twice a year, but only once in their lives do they get to assist in the daily offering of incense by going into the holy place. As Zechariah went inside, Luke chapter 1 verse 10 says, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. While Zechariah was in the Holy of Holies, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him not to be afraid, that his prayers have been heard, and that he and his wife will soon bear a son and that his name will be John. Now, before we gloss over this moment in Scripture, let's consider all that it implies. For one, even in his elderly years, Zechariah was praying for a child. He never stopped believing Yahweh could provide. And so he prayed for what he and his wife wanted, what he and his wife longed for, and what he and his wife dreamt of. We can also infer that in in their elderly age, this couple was still sexually intimate. Since Zechariah and Elizabeth were seen as both holy and righteous and obviously sexually active as an elderly couple, we can draw the conclusion from this story that you can be sexually active and holy, that sex does not make one dirty. Your sex life has nothing to do with your holiness or the imago Dei within you, and sex is not limited or confined to the ways society thinks you should experience sex. And I know this may come as a surprise to many of you, but you can still experience sexual intimacy even in your elderly years. It's so easy for people to dehumanize the elderly, to infantize them, to treat them as infants as they age and as they lose their capacity to do certain things. As people of faith, as people seeking wholeness, we need to intentionally go against putting elderly people in a box and see them as deeply and continuously fully human. You don't become less human as you get older. Your humanity, your vulnerability as a creature, it only becomes more clear. And so let's affirm the full humanity of our elderly community members instead of laughing at them or shaming them for being sexually active. And so the story goes on. Zechariah asks Gabriel, how can this be? I am old in age. And because he doubted the goodness of God in this angelic promise, he came out of the temple unable to speak. And wouldn't you know, despite his doubt, Elizabeth conceived and gave birth to a child, affirming that nothing is impossible with God. While Elizabeth was pregnant, Mary was also visited by the angel Gabriel. It is important to note that this angel is the same angel who visited Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 21, where Daniel wrote, and I quote, While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen before in a vision, came to me in a swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Since this is the same angel from Daniel, which was written 500 years before Mary hears from Gabriel, we can infer 
that this angel is at the very least 600 years old. When we think about life after death, we should allow the Christmas story to comfort us. We should be open to the powerful words of Gabriel. Do not be afraid. The angel Gabriel told both Mary and Zechariah to not be afraid. Do not fear. The presence of Gabriel in scripture tells us a lot about life after death. Here is this angel who is over 500 years old. He is still serving God, being used by God in the glorious work of salvation. According to scripture, once we die, we will be with Christ. We will be part of the great cloud of witnesses encouraging the saints still on earth. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means. None of us can be too sure. But it should comfort us to know that even in death, there is still work to be done. We are still with God, in communion with God, and using our gifts, our talents, and our voice to bring the kingdom on earth. Now, I don't believe that when we die, we turn into angels. The transfiguration affirms that. Remember, in the transfiguration story, when Jesus was on the mountain praying with Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah were still human beings not angels, and people recognize them as Moses and Elijah. Nevertheless, we are still engaged with God and God's will, even after death, and I find so much comfort in that. The most historically compelling aspect of Mary's story is her virginity. Zechariah asked Gabriel, how can this be? For we are along in years. Mary's confusion on the fulfillment of the promise of God is on her virginity. For many of us, the Immaculate Conception is an important part of our faith. If the Immaculate Conception is not true, what else is not true? For many of us, the Immaculate Conception is the beginning of the powerful work of God in the life of Jesus. But for others, this idea that a virgin could give birth to a child is unbelievable. And they have to take it metaphorically and not literally. And so I want to make space for both beliefs about Mary. Because the Immaculate Conception affirms that the baby Jesus is from God, that Jesus is God's own son, not the son of a natural birth or the product of a natural conception. I remember learning in seminary how improbable it was for a Greek person to believe that a God could be born of two humans, that one partner had to be a God. Remember that Luke is a Greek man. This would meet logical for, for Luke to include this. And so perhaps Luke included this story to demonstrate that Jesus was not from two human parents, but from one that was a God and another that was a human. Now, I'm not sure if I believe in the virgin birth as we understand virginity. I definitely believe that Jesus is the biological child of both Mary and Joseph, and I believe that because of the genealogy of Jesus in the Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. If you read Matthew's genealogy closely, you will see Jesus comes from the line of David, not because of Mary, but because of Joseph. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 reads, and I quote, An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew goes on to outline that genealogy until verse 16, where he wrote, and I quote, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was also called the Messiah. End quote. 
According to Matthew, Jesus is from the line of David through Joseph, his earthly father, not through Mary. Coming from the bloodline of King David is paramount because the promises of God to send a Messiah all stated that he was to be the son of David from the bloodline of David. That being said, I believe that Mary was a virgin when she heard the Annunciation, when she heard this announcement of her future pregnancy. But I believe that Jesus was conceived by Joseph and Mary. The baby was born as the great I am. That doesn't go away because Jesus has a biological father, a biological human father. And yes, Jesus has Joseph's genes, but he is the son of God, not Joseph's son and not even Mary's son, if you think about it. This is how I understand the birth of our Messiah. Again, this viewpoint on the Messiah, it's not something you have to agree with me on. You don't even have to agree with me on anything. (laughs) Everything I share with you on this podcast is an offering, something to think about and something to consider. Please believe whatever feels right for you. The power of the Immaculate Conception is that it points to the reality that nothing is impossible with God, as stated in chapter 1, verse 37. The only important thing I want you to seriously deconstruct is this idea that the virginity of Mary is a model for the sexuality of young women. Mary offered up her life and her body to be occupied and used for God's purposes. This is how many pastors and priests have interpreted her story. And it is dangerous to preach this kind of theology, to teach that God expects young women to offer up their bodies and their sexuality for God's will. Mary is not a picture of healthy sexuality, nor is she a picture of unhealthy sexuality. Mary is a picture of God using the poor and the least of these to bring about the great heavenly kingdom. This emphasis on the poor and the outcast is a huge theme throughout the Gospel of Luke, and you are going to see it come up over and over again as we journey our way through this Gospel. Mary makes this emphasis in her Magnificant, the Latin word for Mary's song of praise. She said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. End quote. That is so powerful. Please remember that we might look at the rich and famous as being the most important people in the world, but God looks at the heart and God has special compassion for the poor and the oppressed. God has made it explicitly clear in the birth of our Messiah as a birth through a poor, young, unwed mother. After John the Baptist was born, Zechariah gave a wonderful prophecy that we call the Benedictus. Zechariah's Benedictus foreshadows the ministry of John and Jesus. The last verse in chapter 1 states that John grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. End quote. You may not be able to imagine what it's like growing up in a literal wilderness, but just think of it this way. There is so much that can kill you. <laughs> Rattlesnakes, coyotes, poisonous plants, even the heat can kill you. But even though most of us don't live near the wilderness, many of us grew up in a home that was, in many ways, a spiritual wilderness. Many of us grew up in homes where depression and anxiety and addiction were prevalent, where even addiction to religion was prevalent. 
This is why it is so important to think critically and to prioritize your own spirituality, to prioritize daily time alone with God, to prioritize meditation and prayer throughout the day. This is why we must remain open to new ideas and to new information that might serve us. This is why we must prioritize our own spiritual nourishing through being in community and nature and through self-love. When we fail to nourish ourselves spiritually, we open ourselves up to all kinds of risks of living in a spiritual wilderness. This Lucan emphasis on God's special compassion for the poor and the marginalized is found in the presence of the shepherds meeting the angel. You would think God would send this angel to the Emperor Augustus or to Quirinus, the governor of Syria, someone higher up so as to maximize the amount of people who hear this gospel message to affirm its legitimacy. Well, our Creator is not concerned with government affirmation. God is not concerned with the rich and the powerful. God cares about the lost and the people suffering from injustice. God sent an angel to a group of shepherds. The angel said to the shepherds the same thing he said to Zechariah and to Mary, do not be afraid. Born this day in the city of David, to you is a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. End quote. At this point, we expect the angel to say, you will know the child is the Messiah because he'll be born in a palace clothed in a soft robe with the protection and provision of the government. I mean, he is the king. Or maybe we would expect the angel to say, you will know the child is the Messiah because he'll be born in Jerusalem, near the temple of God, surrounded by the holiest of religious leaders. But that's not what the angel said. They said, this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth, lying in a manger. End quote. God's heart is for the poor and the oppressed, and God made that explicitly clear by giving his son to them. After the angel gave this message to the shepherds, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. End quote. We echo the praise of the angels each Christmas season when we sing the Gloria Excelsis. You know the song. It goes like this. Gloria in excelsis Deo. <laughs> okay, that's all I'm singing for today. I just wanted to kind of connect that song to this point in scripture because I think it's really powerful. <laughs> After the birth of Christ and after the time of Mary's purification, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus went to the temple in Jerusalem. Purity laws in the Old Testament have specific rules for women after they give birth. After a woman gives birth, she and whoever touches her, like a loving partner who holds her hand through delivery, he and whoever touches her are considered unclean. According to Leviticus, the person who touched the woman given birth giving birth was unclean for only a day, but the woman who gave birth was unclean for eight days and then could not go to the temple for 33 days after that. Mary probably waited about 40 days before she went to the temple in Jerusalem with her young family to offer a sacrifice to present her child. 
Jewish parents were supposed to bring their child to the temple to offer up a sacrifice to God out of thanksgiving. You can read all about this in the purification rules for women in Leviticus chapter 12. It is in this presentation of the baby Jesus at the temple where Simeon and the prophet Anna praised God for promises fulfilled. What they had been praying for finally came to pass. In his commentary on Luke, Fred Craddock describes the theology behind the infancy narratives as the creed behind all creeds. And he is referring to what Mary declared after hearing from the angel Gabriel, that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. This reality is affirmed in the birth of John by two wonderfully elderly parents. This is affirmed in the birth of Jesus through a poor, lowly teenage girl. And this is affirmed in the glorious announcement to the shepherds of God's inclusivity of the poor and the marginalized. It is in believing that nothing is impossible with God that we can even begin to believe in John 3.16. If you are living in a spiritual wilderness, I want to encourage you to take heart. God is with you, even when you feel like God is gone, even when you feel spiritually dry and scared inside. If you are living in a spiritual wilderness, I want to encourage you to do everything you can to nourish yourself. Meditate, read scripture, spend time at church, call your friends and make space for them to share with you their problems. Go outside, go for a walk or a hike. Believe in the goodness of God. And if you can't believe in that goodness, act as if. Act as if it's true. Act as if God is good and that everything that's going on is going to work out. Act as if the best is yet to come. Your circumstances and your emotions do not erase the truth. If feeling better and experiencing hope feels almost impossible, remember that the creed behind all creeds, that nothing is impossible with God. Hope is a belief that the best is yet to come. And no matter where you are in life, I believe that for you. And I believe that for myself just as much as I believe that for you. I hope you enjoyed this episode on the Gospel of Luke and on the infancy narratives. If this show has been helpful to you, I want to encourage you to write a rating and review. Please share the show with others and encourage them to check it out. Until next time, my name is Ashley Lynn Hanks, and you are listening to The Unlearning Podcast.